knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. So now we're back in the book of Romans, and Jacob, he sinned against his brother Esau. He took his birthright. He took his blessing. Uh, he did it in a very deceptive way. Um, and then Jacob dealt with this sin by running from the consequences of his sin, uh, by running from the person that he sinned against. And now for 20 years, he's been away from Esau. For 20 years, God has been working in the life of Jacob. And the last chapter that we did before I went off to Kenya was chapter 32. And we saw a big change in the life of Jacob. He had this wrestling match with God. And at the end of that, God changes his name. He's no longer Jacob, the heel catcher, Jacob, the deceiver. Now he is Israel, the one who is now governed by God, the one who now God has prevailed over. And so Jacob has finally surrendered his life to God, but now it's time for him to deal with something he's been running from for a long time, to deal with the sin that he did against his brother Esau. And so now he's going to come and he's going to have that uh, time with his brother, uh, a time hopefully for him to reconcile with his brother. And that's what he's seeking to do. Uh, we'll see if that actually happens or not, but that's his desire. He wants reconciliation with his brother who he sinned against, who has been all this time. His brother wanted to kill him, and there's obviously some serious issues within that relationship. And so we're going to note five important things concerning reconciliation here in this chapter. Uh, and I think it's important for all of us because all of us sin against others, and we have others sin against us. And when that happens, there's a need for reconciliation. There's a need for that relationship to be restored. And there are certain things that we must understand and certain things that we need to do in order for that to happen. And so we're going to see some of that here in this chapter. And so I think it'll be very applicable for us because we're always in situations where we're in need of reconciliation. And for those of us who are married, uh, even more so. We always have issues where there's conflict or there's problems and we sin against our spouse. And so we need to come back uh, and have that restoration and that reconciliation take place. And so we're going to see some important things that Jacob does in his attempt to be reconciled with his brother Esau here in chapter 33. And so let's start in verse 1 and see what we can learn. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. 
So last chapter, we were told that Jacob was full of fear when he heard the news that Esau was coming. That wasn't the thing that made him afraid. It was the fact that Esau was coming with 400 men. And he only thinks the worst. You know, why do you bring 400 men with you? And so Jacob is thinking, Esau's coming to wipe me out. He's coming to wipe out my family. Uh, and so what Jacob does in response to this reveals some things about him too specifically. The first one is the obvious one that he's afraid. He's afraid of Esau. He's afraid of these 400 men. He's afraid of what they might do to him and to his family. But what he also does reveals who he loved best. I want you to picture this now. Esau is coming towards him and Esau has 400 men. So the first people that Esau encounters, if Esau wants to kill them, those are going to be the first people to die. So you don't want to be at the front lines because then you're the ones who are going to be uh, killed first. And so how Jacob sets this up shows kind of how he feels about the different women in his life and the different children in his life. And notice that the first people he puts at the front lines are the two maids. Remember, you know, both of his wives had maids that he'd slept with and had children with. And so the maids and the children he had with those maids, they're at the front. So if Esau's coming to hurt them, they're the first ones to die, which gives the other behind a little time to escape. And so those are the ones that he loves least. The next in line are Leah and her children. Uh, and so, you know, he loves them a little more. He gives them a, a chance to escape. But then bringing up the rear, the one that he clearly loves the most, we have Rachel and Joseph. And so they're in the very back. They're the ones that he hopes if anyone gets away and survives, it will be them. Now, this love for Joseph that is greater than the rest of his children, we're going to see as this story continues in the next chapters, is going to be a real problem for Joseph. But we see here, you know, that, you know, Jacob has favorites, uh, and he's placing his family in this way to hopefully save the ones that he loves the most. But the thing I want you to really take note of is where Jacob is. Because before Jacob has an encounter with God, and I want you to remember that last chapter, Jacob has that great encounter with God, that wrestling match. He finally surrenders to the Lord. But before that, Jacob was at the back. He was the final person. He was the one who, if anyone's going to escape, it's going to be him. And so he was taking care of himself looking to his own needs the most. If anyone was going to survive, Jacob wanted it to be himself. And so he's at the very back, and then all of a sudden he has this encounter with God, and now notice where he is. Notice the difference. He now goes from the back to the very front. He's the first one out there. He's had this big change in his life. He's no longer loving himself the most. He's no longer seeking to protect himself the most. Now he's willing to put himself in harm's way. And so he goes out at the front of everyone, and now you have Esau, and you have the 400 men with him, and they're there, and Jacob is in front of all of them. And he's there. He's vulnerable. If Esau wants to kill him, he's going to die. But he does something else that we're told in verse 3. Um, Notice what he does here. He bows himself seven times to the ground. Here we see 
Jacob demonstrating humility, demonstrating this submission to his brother Esau, which is kind of interesting because if you remember back with the blessing, Isaac and part of the blessing was that Esau and his descendants would bow to Jacob, not vice versa. But Jacob is now coming and he is bowing down. He's showing humility towards his brother that he has sinned against. And as I noted at the beginning, he wants reconciliation. He wants to be reconciled with his brother. And I want you to know one of the most important things that you and I can do if you're seeking to reconcile with someone is to approach them in humility, especially when you're the one who sinned against them. And that's where Jacob was. He is the one who did the sin. He's the one who caused the problem in the relationship with his brother. And so it's right that he would be the one that would humble himself before Esau. You know, one of the biggest things that keeps reconciliation from happening is our pride. You know, our pride keeps us from repenting. Our pride keeps us from being willing to uh, say that we're sorry, to ask for forgiveness. Uh, It keeps us from admitting that we're wrong. It keeps us selfish and just hinders us from having reconciliation take place. And, And all of us are in relationships and been in relationships where we've allowed our pride to get in the way where reconciliation can't happen because we're not willing to let it happen. Our pride just kind of digs in and says, no, I'm not going to admit wrong. I'm not going to apologize for what I've done. And, you know, because of that, the reconciliation process cannot continue. And so pride causes division, but humility brings reconciliation. In Philippians chapter 2, we're given a wonderful picture of Jesus' humility that we're challenged to follow the example of. And I just want to read it to you. We could spend all night digging into it, but it's just a great passage, a great challenge and encouragement for us. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3, says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let us esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, Jesus is the greatest example of humility. And it was Jesus' willingness to humble himself in such a great way where he was willing to go to the cross that reconciliation was possible between us and God. If Jesus wasn't willing to humble himself, then we couldn't be reconciled to God. He's the one who made that possible by sacrificing himself on the cross. And here Philippians is challenging us to have that mind of Christ, that willingness to humble ourselves in that way. But the interesting thing about Jesus is he's the innocent party. We're the ones who sinned against him. He didn't sin against us. And yet he's the one humbling himself so that we can be reconciled to him. And as I mentioned, you know, if you're in a conflict and you're the sinful party, you're the one who has done the sin, then you should be the one who humbles yourself since you're guilty. But yet Jesus gives an example of saying, you know what? It's even good to humble yourself 
when you're seeking to reconcile, even if you're the innocent party, even if you're the one who hasn't done any wrong, but you're wanting reconciliation to happen, and if you want that to take place, humility is always very important. So whether you're guilty or whether you're innocent, we should always approach the other person in a humble way. Jerry Bridges said this, God did not wait for a change of heart on our part. He made the first move. Indeed, he did more than that. He did all was necessary to secure our reconciliation, including our change of heart. Even though he is the one offended by our sin, he is the one who makes amends to himself for the death of Christ. So the first lesson I want us to take note of as we're thinking of things that are important to do as we seek to reconcile with others is number one, humility is essential if you want reconciliation to happen. If you want to reconcile with someone, one of the best things that you can do, one of the best things that I can do is approach them with humility. Keep pride away. That's one of the worst things for reconciliation. Whether you're guilty, whether you're innocent, deal with that person in humility and watch how your humble approach increases their willingness to reconcile. You know, when, when you're kind of not sure and when there's difficulty in a relationship and the other person shows any sign of arrogance or pride, right away there's something within us that says, I don't want to continue with this. But when they're humble and when they're, you can see that and they're apologizing and they're repentant, there's something within us that desires for that reconciliation to happen. Now, all of us struggle with sometimes not doing this properly. We're sometimes allowing pride to, to be there and not humble ourselves within these different encounters and relationships. And so what can we do to help ourselves be more humble instead of prideful? Well, one thing we can do is what we see here that Jacob did. Well, what changed him from being the prideful man he was to now being willing to humble himself before his brother. And really we see this change in Jacob because right before this happens, remember, Jacob has this encounter with God, this time with God, and all of a sudden he goes for looking after number one, being the farthest back, taking care of himself, you know, always having his own needs wanting to be met, to now saying, you know what, I'm going to put myself in front and I'm going to humble myself before my brother. And I think there's something important that we note here of the before and after Jacob's encounter with God and the difference in how he responds to his own sin and how he responds to his circumstance. And you know, when we sin against someone, there's basically two ways that we can go. We can go the way that Jacob initially did when he first responded. He ran from his problems. He tried to hide behind family, behind people, behind things. He made excuses. He tried to pass the blame. He tried to justify it. But none of those responses dealt with his sin. None of those responses brought reconciliation between him and those that he sinned against, especially Esau. And so that's not the direction we should want to go. We should see in Jacob's life that that doesn't work. You know, when we respond that way to our sin, it's not beneficial. It doesn't bring ultimately what God wants and hopefully what we want as well, which should be a reconciliation and a restoration within the relationship that has been broken because of sin. When we sin, the second way we can respond is what Jacob did after 
his encounter with God, no longer trying to hide from our sin, no longer trying to uh, make excuses for it, but now willing to face the one that we sinned against and willing to do that in humility, seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. And that's the response that God wants from us. He wants us to come in humility, to come in repentance, to come and, and deal with this in our relationship with him. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from unrighteousness. He's asking us to come and humble ourselves and confess. But in the same way, in our relationships with others, God wants us to do this as well. And I just want us to note that the thing that oftentimes determines whether we're going to choose to respond in pride and sin and, and blaming and all these things that Jacob initially did versus whether we're going to respond in humility and repentance in the way that God wants often is directed by, have we spent time with God recently? That's such a key. You know, Jacob just spent time with the Lord and there's a very different response that he has. And I know in my own life I've experienced this. I'm sure you have as well of our encounter with God and how frequent it is often determines how we respond to life's relational struggles. You know, when we're in sin or someone's sinning against us and we want to get right and reconciled, how we respond, how we do that, whether we do it biblically, whether we do it godly, is so often determined by whether or not we're regularly spending time with the Lord, which brings us to the second lesson I want us to take note of concerning reconciliation, and it's this. It's our regular encounters with God that help us to respond properly when seeking to reconcile. The more you and I spend time with God, the more humble we will be. The more you and I spend with God, the more likely we will be to respond with a repentant heart in the right godly way that we'll avoid pride. You know, it's that time with the Lord that's so essential for this to actually work. And so we can know intellectually, yeah, I should be humble and not prideful. But the reality is, if we're neglecting God and time with God, we can know we should be humble, but the likelihood is we won't be. You know, because neglecting time with the Lord ultimately leads to our own selfishness and pride, uh, and it doesn't help us as we seek to reconcile. So Jacob does something wonderful. He puts his life really on the line. He humbles himself. He does what he needs to do for the reconciliation of him and, and Esau to move forward, but with any relationship, it takes two to reconcile. You can do everything on your part and reconciliation could still not happen because the other party isn't willing on their end. And so now Jacob's done what he needs to do to start this process. So let's see how Esau responds. Is he going to receive this humility? Is he going to receive what Jacob does or is he going to reject it? Because that ultimately is now in his hands. Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Then the maidservants came near. They and their children bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children and they bowed down. Afterwards, Joseph and Rachel came near and they bowed down. So Jacob is there bowing himself to the ground. He does that seven times, probably thinking the worst, that this is it. You know, 
Esau, these 400 men, my life's done. You know, I'm so vulnerable just laying here. You know, if he wants to kill me, he's going to kill me. He probably is going to kill me. And then Esau walks up to him, and I'm sure he's probably thinking, this is it. And instead of, you know, a sword through the heart, he gets a big hug and, you know, this wonderful reception from Esau. And Esau starts to weep. And then Jacob is probably just so overwhelmed with emotion of, I can't believe this is happening. He starts to weep, and they're both just crying and hugging one another. Uh, and then Esau looks and he sees, you know, all these other people with Jacob and asks, you know, who are these that are with you? And Jacob's like, hey, this is my family that the Lord has blessed me with. And notice the first people to come because they were the uh, ones in the front. So the maids and the children the maids had are right there. And so they greet and bow down before Esau. And then Leah and her children are, are next to come up and do the same. And then finally, Joseph and Rachel come and bow down as well. And so there's this wonderful reunion, this wonderful uh, reconciliation that's taking place uh, and you know, remember before this, though, in chapter 32, Jacob was sending lots of gifts. He broke up the, the group of people in the first group. He says, OK, when you get to Esau, give him this gift and say it's from Jacob. And then the next group comes and gives a gift and they say the same thing. It's from Jacob, and he's coming. And so Esau has been getting all these gifts. And now finally, Jacob's there. And so Esau is going to ask about the gifts that had been given to him in verse eight. Then Esau said, what did you mean by all this company which I met? And Jacob said, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please. If I had found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. And as much as I have seen your face, as though I have seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. So Esau asked Jacob, hey, what is what did you mean by this company which I met? All this stuff that you had given me, you know, as you know, the people that are with you came and they gave me all this stuff. You know, what's that all about? And Jacob says, hey, these gifts were for, you know, to find favor in your sight. That was what my hope was. And Esau says, you know, you can keep the gifts. I have plenty. And remember, you know, one of the things that uh, Isaac prayed, even though, you know, the blessing went to Jacob and the birthright went to Jacob, was that Esau would be blessed. Uh, and we see that God answered that and he has plenty. Um, but Jacob says, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. But notice what he goes on to say. And as much as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. You know, I think Jacob is now recognizing something of God's hand in this. When I look at your face, Esau, it's like looking at the face of God because God has done this, because I'm thinking you're going to come and kill me, and yet you embrace me, and you love me, and you forgive me. And, you know, he's recognizing just like with Laban, when God says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to send you back to the promised land. I'm going to watch over you and your family. And he didn't trust it. And he ran from Laban. He did everything in his own. And God protected him from Laban. 
And now once again, he's not sure if God's going to come through, if God's going to protect him from Esau. He's worried, he's scared, he's fearful. And yet as he looks at Esau and he looks at the response that Esau has to him, this wonderful response where he hugs him and he loves him, he says, I see the face of God here because I recognize what God has done. God is the one who has worked in you so that you no longer want to kill me. And I think this is important to note. It wasn't Jacob's gifts that changed Esau's heart. It was God that changed Esau's heart. Jacob sends all these gifts, hoping that, you know, I'm going to come up with this scheme that's going to make my brother no longer want to kill me. But we see that Esau didn't even care about those things. He didn't even want them. He says, Jacob, you can keep that stuff. That's not what moved him. What ultimately moved him was God. God worked in the heart of Esau to change him so that he was willing to forgive his brother. This man who wanted to kill Jacob, who hated him, now is hugging him and kissing him and willing to forgive and love him because of what God had done. And we shouldn't be surprised because this is what God swore. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to deal with all these issues that you have. Trust me and go back to the promised land. You know, when you're looking through the Bible, you see that God is able to do some of the most amazing things through people that you would least expect. You look at certain people and say, surely God could never use them. Surely God could never work in them. Surely God could never change them. But, you know, as God changes the lives of people that we would never expect, we kind of look and we think, wow, uh, I didn't think this would happen. I think a great example of this is in the life of Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. You know, when the first church first started, you have Saul and, you know, he's wanting to destroy Christianity. He's murdering people. He's imprisoning people. And, you know, through whatever means necessary, he wants Christianity to be destroyed. And most Christians knew who Saul was. They knew about what's going on. And you know the story of he's going to Damascus and all of a sudden he has an encounter with God and there's this change in his life uh, and he becomes a Christian. But the early church was still very much like, can we trust this guy? As he comes and says, hey, I've been changed. Hey, I'm now a believer. Let, let me come into your church. Well, the last time you came into our church, you threw us all in prison and you killed half of us. You know, stay away. And, and there was this thought of like, we don't really believe it. It took Barnabas to say, no, really, he's changed. You got to believe and trust that God has done this work in his life. And, you know, they underestimated what God can do. They concluded Saul is beyond hope. Here's a man who could never change. Here's a man that God could never grab a hold of. Here's a man that God could never use. And they did not expect the change that happened in his life. And I believe that Jacob was in that same place with Esau. He's amazed at what God's able to do because he didn't expect God was able to change Esau. He didn't expect that God was able to take this man who wanted him dead and bring him to a place where he was willing to love him and forgive him and reconcile with him. You know, I think you and I also often struggle with this ourselves. We struggle with underestimating what God can do in certain people's lives. You know, we look and we think, you know what, they're never going to change. God can never change them. God can never use them. They're always going to be the same. I mean, if you just understood, if you just knew how, you know, I've been trying, I've been praying for years, I've never seen any difference, any change in their life. And we get to this point where we think God could never do anything 
in that person. I know I've done that in my life. I've got where family or friends or people, and you just see how messed up they are, and you come to this conclusion, they're never going to change. It's always going to be that way. There's not going to be anything different or new. And the problem with doing that is you often give up on them. Well, you know what? I'm just wasting my time praying for this person. I'm wasting my time investing in this person. I'm wasting my time even thinking about this person. They're they're just going to be the way they are, and they're just kind of on a road to hell, and nothing's going to stop that, and we give up when we shouldn't. God changed Jacob. He was a man who was very prideful, a man who was very selfish, a man who depended on himself, and he brought him to a place where he went from Jacob the deceiver to Israel the man who's willing to be humble and dependent on the Lord. And Jacob, of all people, should have recognized Esau is able to be changed. Look at me. Look what God did in me. And I think that's something that we never lose sight of. And I think the longer that we're saved, the more we forget what we used to be before we're saved. And sometimes we look at people and think, God could never work in them. And it's like, well, look at what he did in me. Look at how he changed me. If he can change me, he can change them. God changed Esau from a man who wanted to kill Jacob to a man who lovingly received him. And this brings us to the third lesson that I think is just important to recognize about God as we think about reconciliation, and that's this. Don't underestimate what God can do to change someone's life. Don't underestimate what God can do to change someone's life. You know, I think one of the reasons we often don't seek to reconcile with someone is we don't think they'll change. Oh, that, I'm not even going to try anymore. You know, I'm not going to even give it my time to try to restore and reconcile this relationship because this person's beyond hope. They've done this too many times. I'm no longer going to even give it my efforts because we don't think they're going to be willing to repent. We don't think they're going to be willing to, to change or we don't think that, you know, they're going to be willing to forgive us. You know, oh, I've done this too many times and surely, you know, if I come to them and repent of my sin, they're not going to accept it. They're not going to forgive me. And sometimes we just give up and we just think, you know what? God can't work in this person. God can't change the heart of this person. And so because we think that way, we oftentimes just avoid the important need to reconcile because we think it's a hopeless thing. It's pointless. Why even try? It's not going to happen. Instead of, Lord, I'm going to do what you've called me to do and trust you that you can work in this person that you can change hearts, that you can change lives, and trust you with that. If God can change a man like Saul, if he can change someone like Jacob and Esau, surely he can change us, and surely he can change those that we are praying that he would change. So when it comes to reconciliation, do your part. Trust in the Lord to do his part in someone else's life. You don't have any control over how that person responds. You don't have control over what they're going to do, but you have control over yourself to come humbly. And if you're the one who sinned, to repent. And if you're the one who's been sinned against, to offer forgiveness. But do what you've been called to do and then just trust the Lord to work in the life of the other person that maybe has a bad track record, but just asking the Lord to move in their life. There's something else I want to draw your attention to that Jacob wants to give Esau here in verse 11. It says this, Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me 
and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. Please take my blessing. I find this very interesting because the the source of the problem here is the fact that Jacob stole the blessing of his brother. This is where it all kind of went problematic. The birthright, you could kind of give Esau a little bit of the problem there because he sells it for a pot of stew. But the blessing, that was a deceptive, purposeful thing that Jacob came and deceived his dad and got that when it shouldn't have been his in that regard. And so he stole that. He took that from his brother. And I find interesting now, I, I took the blessing And now it's my desire that you would receive this blessing from me. I have a blessing that I want to offer to you because I am guilty of taking the blessing that you were supposed to receive 20 years ago. So Esau, really, he's wanting to restore something that he has taken, that he has stolen. And I think this is another great thing to do when you're seeking to reconcile with someone. You know, so often when we sin against someone, we take something. Sometimes it's something physical, like maybe a blessing, or it could be money or some kind of material thing. Uh, but also we have many emotional things that we take, like trust, and we lose that. We steal that. We do that through a lot of different sinful behavior within a relationship of trust, you know, because of our sin and what we do. We could take that away from the other person so they no longer place that within us. We could take self-worth from people uh, with our words and our actions and things that we say and things that we do. And so, you know, there's there's emotional things that we can take. There's also spiritual things that we can take. We can take spiritually investing in someone's life. We can take that role, especially if you're a man in a relationship of being that spiritual leader. Oftentimes we, we take that away and remove what we're supposed to be doing and it brings lots of problems with it. And so the fourth lesson I want us to take note of concerning reconciliation is this. If you have taken something from someone as you reconcile with them, you should seek to restore what you have taken. That should be part of this process. If we've taken something and we want reconciliation to happen, we should say, you know what, I want to do all that I can to restore that. Now, some things are easier to restore than others. If you physically take something and you still have it, it's pretty easy to give it back. But when it comes to the emotional and spiritual side of things, then it can become very difficult. If you take someone's trust, that's not easy to get back. If if you've done things that the other person now no longer trusts you for good reason, to get that trust back is not going to be something that's going to happen overnight. But it shouldn't be something that you just give up on of like, well, I'm never going to get their trust back. Well, no, I should be seeking to restore that trust. Whatever I got to do for however long I got to do it, I'm going to seek to do that because I've taken that. And now as this reconciliation happens, I want to seek to restore that which I have taken away. Uh, And so some things are going to be much more difficult, but still we should seek to restore as much as we can um, what we can. And there's going to be, you know, a bit on the other person's side where there are certain things that maybe we can never fully restore and they're just going to have to, you know, be willing to forgive and accept that reality. But we should, as the party that has offended, seek to restore if we can. So things have worked out really well for Jacob, much better than he thought. This reconciliation with his brother is going great. 
But he's going to do something here at the end of this chapter that at first you're kind of like, Jacob, what are you doing? But yet, you know what? I think we are often prone to do what Jacob does here. And it looks like, man, everything's great. And you guys can now, after 20 years, have this relationship that you have been missing. Finally, you're together again. Finally, you can invest in each other's relationship. Finally, I mean, there's no mom and dad anymore. It's just you two. What a great opportunity for Jacob and Esau to reconnect and deepen that relationship and just be brothers again. And you would think, now it's possible. Esau forgives him. Esau hugs him. Esau shows him love. Great. But let's see what Jacob does. Verse 12. Then Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and the herd which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go ahead before his servants. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. And Esau said, now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place was called Succoth. So after this long time apart, Jacob and Esau, 20 years, they have this chance to get together. Esau says, hey, let's travel together. Yeah, you know, He came from Seir up to this point here, and, and that's where he's going back. And, you know, come travel with me. And Jacob has this opportunity. Great, yeah, let's travel together. Let's reconnect. It's just so wonderful. But that's not his response. You know, well, we can't travel together because, you know, you guys are going to go way too fast. You know, we got, you know, a lot of kids and we got all this livestock. And if we drive them too hard, the livestock are going to die. And so you just go on ahead and we'll catch up with you and Seir in a little bit. And so he says, okay, well, that makes sense. Well, let me leave some of my men with you, most likely for your protection. And Jacob says, no, 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 no need for any of your guys to stay with us. don't, Don't worry about that. You just go ahead with your 400 men that are with you, and we'll meet you in Seir. Now, you would think, okay, this is not a big deal. Jacob just wants to go slower, and and this is all fine. But verse 17 reveals what's really going on in Jacob's heart. And it says, And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Now, I want you to look at this map, because the map reveals here what's going on. So Jacob and his family have been traveling down south, and they finally cross over the river Jacob, and that's where they meet Esau. So somewhere within that little square there on the map, you have Jacob bowing himself, Esau and the 400 men. They're all there. Esau has come up north from Seir, and that's where he's headed back. And so Jacob and all of them are going south towards there, and that's when this conversation happens. Hey, journey with me. No, you're going to go too fast. You go down ahead of us, and we'll meet you. And right when Esau leaves and goes back to Seir, notice where Jacob goes. Back north across the river up to Succoth. (laughs) Totally opposite direction of where his brother is going. 
And this just shows something within Jacob. He's glad to be reconciled with his brother, but he doesn't want to be too close to Esau. He doesn't want to spend time with him, and he ultimately lies to Esau to get away from him. Now, we're not told exactly why Jacob does this. Most likely, he's still scared. They're still thinking, well, maybe Esau isn't fully forgiven me. Maybe he still wants to kill me. Maybe there's still ill will in his heart. And, you know, this is one of those issues that come when we seek to reconcile and we are the party who has sinned against someone else. And we oftentimes struggle with believing that they could truly forgive us. You know, after what I did and it was so big or how many times I've done it, I don't know if I really believe that they are sincere in their forgiveness of me. And so we avoid them. We avoid that relationship. And oftentimes we make up lies of like, you know, why I can't spend time with you instead of seeking to really restore and invest in the relationship. Like, all right, this is great. The reconciliation has happened. Let's deepen this. Let's get back to what we ultimately were. But there's sometimes part of us that say, I don't really believe that you really can forgive me for that. And so I'm, I'm worried that, you know, you're going to get upset with me or I'm worried that something's bad's going to happen. And so I'm just going to protect myself and avoid you. Or it could be the other side that we're the ones who have been sinned against. And we don't believe that they're sincere in their apology. We don't believe that they're truly repentant. And we say, oh yeah, this is great that we're reconciled, but I'm never spending any time with you again. Or maybe I'm never going to make myself vulnerable to being hurt by you again. Or whatever it may be where there's not a real sincerity of, I want true reconciliation. I want that relationship back. I'm glad that you've apologized. I'm glad that you've said you're sorry, but don't expect me to hang out with you anymore. Don't expect time with me anymore. And, you know, the problem with this is we really miss the goal of reconciliation, which should be to bring the relationship back to the place that it was and actually to go deeper and to thrive. And if that's truly the goal, if that's truly the heart of why I bring to someone, hey, you sinned against me, we need to deal with this, or why I come to someone and saying, I'm sorry because I've sinned against you, the ultimate goal should be, hey, there's a problem and it's sin and it's hurt our relationship. And the only way for our relationship to be restored and to get back to the way it was is for this to be dealt with. And so if I'm the party that's guilty, I'm going to apologize. And if you're the party that's guilty, I'm going to hope that you're going to apologize and I'm going to offer forgiveness so that we can get back to the way we were and that the relationship can continue and it can deepen and it can grow. But too often, that's not really the, the result we want. It's like, yeah, yeah, we'll go through the motions of, you know, apology, whatever. But in my mind, I never want to see you again. I never want time with you again. I don't really want the relationship to continue. And that's not true reconciliation. That should not be the heart we have. And it brings us to the fifth lesson I want us to take note of concerning reconciliation. We need to reinvest in relationships once reconciliation has happened. You know, if you're not willing to reinvest in the relationship, then you probably have not really reconciled. If you're not willing to reinvest in the relationship, then I would have to ask, are you really sorry or are you really willing to forgive? Because you could say it, and if I say, you know what, I really truly forgive you, but I'm not going to spend time with you, shows that I don't truly forgive you. Because if I really 
dead, then I'd be willing to have a relationship again. I'd be willing to let you in my life. But if I just say I forgive you, I don't want anything to do with you, then I still got issues with you. Uh, and so that forgiveness is not real. Uh, it's not, you know, so that should be where we want to get to. Now, there might be times where we struggle with that because of the magnitude of the sin, and we need to ask the Lord to help us get to a place, and it might not be overnight, where we truly want time with that person, but we should pray, Lord, help me to truly fully forgive and for this relationship to be able to come back to what it used to be. But that should be the heart that we have. And I've seen too often, you know, especially in doing counseling with marriage or just doing counseling with people who are having issues, there's just an unwillingness for the relationship to get back. You know, one party or oftentimes both parties, and it's like, you know, they don't really even want this anymore, uh, which, you know, goes against ultimately what God desires of us to truly have forgiveness and reconciliation and for the relationship to continue. So Jacob wasn't willing to do that for Esau. He lies to Esau. He claims, oh yeah, I'll go down where you're going to be and you know, we'll get to have our time together. Instead, he goes off to another place. And let's see where he ends up and what he does at the end of this chapter, verses 18 through 20. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he brought the par- and he bought sorry the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for one hundred pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it Elohim, Israel. So Jacob goes to the region of Succoth, and in that region there is a city, the city of Shechem, and that's where he settles down. And I want you to realize the only reason he's there is not because God told him to go there, but because he wants to avoid his brother. My brother's south, I'm going north. You know, that, that's why I've come to this place. But if it's interesting, if you remember back in chapter 31, when God calls him to come back to the promised land, God calls him to a specific place, the place that you met me, where you built the altar, which was in Bethel. That's where he was supposed to go. In chapter 35, we're going to see God call him to go to Bethel again because that's where God wanted him to be. He never wanted him in Shechem, but he goes to Shechem ultimately because he doesn't really want to be close to his brother. Maybe he's once again just trying to protect himself like he's done his whole life, but yet he's not willing to really be fully obedient. It's great that he's come back to the promised land and he's no longer where he once was, but as we saw with Abraham, Partial obedience isn't what God wants. And that's really where Jacob is right now. He's partially obedient. I've come back to the promised land, and I've sought to reconcile with my brother, but not fully. I haven't really gone where you want me to be in Bethel, but I am in the promised land. And hey, you know what? While I'm here in Shechem, I'll even make an altar for you. And, you know, that's something that I'll do. But, you know, even that altar is something that's really offered where God first wants obedience before sacrifice. And it's like, hey, I don't care about your altar if you're not going to obey me. Um, And he gives it a great name, Elohi Israel, which means the mighty God of Israel. Here's an altar for the mighty God of Israel. Look what you've done. Hey, praise you. And God's like, yeah, that's nice. Be obedient. And I think that's too often a good example in our own life of we're willing to worship (laughs) through song or some other means but not through the way that God wants it most, which is through our obedience. Jacob's going to suffer in this time of Shechem, in this place where he's not really where he's supposed to be in the next few chapters. Um, And it's really a time of disobedience. And 
there's going to be consequences to that. But, you know, the main thing that we see in this chapter are these lessons when it comes to reconciling with others. And we see that Jacob does some good things. We learn some important things, you know, in this process. The first one of all, I think maybe the most important in the reconciliation process is the importance of humility. Second, uh, the regular encounters with God that really make it possible for us to respond the way we should. Neglect time with God. Don't expect that you're going to do well when you have conflict, when you have different problems with people. You know, time with God is essential for us to respond in a godly way. And don't underestimate what God can do in someone's life. Realize, hey, he can change them just like he's changing you. You know, look at where you used to be versus where you are now and trust that God can do that work in the lives of others and be willing to seek to reconcile with them. Uh, But also be willing to restore what you've taken and ultimately be willing to reinvest in the relationship once the reconciliation has happened. Now, I will say this, if you come and you you know, you're the guilty party and you repent and they're not willing to forgive you, you're not going to be able to reinvest in that relationship because they're not going to allow it. Or the other way around, if someone has sinned against you and they come and they repent and you're not willing to forgive them, then that reconciliation is not going to happen. Or if you come to someone and say, hey, you sinned against me, you know, this has hurt me and they're like, whatever, I'm not forgiving you. I'm not, you know, repenting of that. Well, then once again, you know, it takes two for the reconciliation to take place. But if both parties are claiming repentance and forgiveness, then there should be a willingness to reinvest in the relationship and hopefully get it back to where it was before the sin hindered it to begin with. And so, you know, this is something that we deal with a lot. And if you're not dealing with it right now, you'll deal with it soon, you know, because we all are sinners and there's going to be people in your life that sin against you and the necessity to deal with this properly. It's just... We, we face it all the time, uh, and so hopefully this is a good reminder of the important steps we should take, the mindset we should have, uh, and you know that we will do this you know, when we're faced with the situation that Jacob was as well. So any thoughts or questions from what we looked at in this chapter?